What is humanity's oldest lie? And how is it freshly emerging to steal the hearts and minds of a new generation? Our guest today, Biola Professor Thad Williams, has a fascinating new book with a very provocative title called Don't Follow Your Heart, subtitled Boldly Breaking the Ten Commandments of Self-Worship. We're going to dissect his Ten Commandments and talk about how to be what he calls a cultural heretic today. I'm your host, Scott Ray, and this is Think Biblically, a podcast from Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. Thad, welcome. Great to have you with us. Congrats on your new book. It's a home run. Uh, But I suspect the first question our listeners have is, what on earth do you mean, don't follow your heart? Why why not, and what's wrong with that? Sure. I wish I could take credit for it, but it's actually uh, the wisdom of a nine-year-old. So in the Williams household, we play a little game of spot the lie, a game we picked up from uh, the great Christian thinker, culture commentator, Os Guinness. Uh, And the idea is your kids are watching something instead of just passively consuming information, uh, teach your kids some discernment so they don't just become chameleons taking on the colors of whatever's around them. So this was a few years ago, my now 13-year-old, which is scary to say, uh, but when she was nine, uh, Dutchy, we call her, Holland's her name, and she comes jumping down the stairs, Daddy, you owe me another dollar. Well, what'd you find this time, darling? And she had been watching a commercial for some pixie, princess, rainbow, unicorn, whatever, And she said, Daddy, the commercial told me I should follow my heart. I said, okay, what's the problem? And this is her exact response permanently filed away in the proud daddy moments in my my memory bank there. Uh, She said, Daddy, I don't want to follow my heart. My heart's fallen. I'd way rather follow God's heart. And I just what a, what a moment! Like teared up, wrapped my arms around her. She got five bucks for that one, <laughs> well earned five dollars. Um, but I realized just how countercultural that statement is, where they they are bombarded the up and coming generations with this false gospel of be true to yourself. The answers are within. You know, eighty eighty four percent of Americans think the chief end of man is to enjoy yourself. Eighty six percent. Think that to enjoy yourself, do what you desire most. 91% say the answers are within. Um, so, yeah, the book really is a call to be heretics against that cult of self worship. All right. So, you say we're boldly breaking the Ten Commandments of self worship. I take it there's something about self worship that, 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 that constitutes humanity's oldest lie. Sure. What is it specifically? Yeah. Well, let's, let's hop in a time machine together whisk back to Genesis 3, uh, famous scene, serpents with our first parents in the garden. And the promise in Genesis 3 verse 5 is that you will be the languages like God, knowing good and evil. And, and for years that baffled me, like, okay, does that mean Adam and Eve just had a theoretical knowledge of good and evil, and by sinning they had an experiential knowledge? It, it just... Every interpretation I read didn't seem to, to jive until a few years ago I was reading Abraham Kuyper, uh, his tome, his 900-pager on common grace. He does a little exposition of the, pa- the passage, and he says the Hebrew term for knowing doesn't really have a, a solid English equivalent. He says it's something like a maker's knowledge. God knows it because he made it that way, a designer's knowledge. 
And and it reminds me of uh, back when I graduated Biola, you know, back in the early 60s. Uh, <laughs> not really. Dude, you're not that old. <laughs> you might <laughs> feel it, but you're not that old. <laughs> you were my professor in, now, let's say- Now uh, we're dating ourselves. We'll, we'll keep the dates uh, <laughs> ambiguous here. But uh, when I was in graduate school, when I was at Talbot, uh, one of my roommates, an old high school friend, played bass for- a band called Lincoln Park. And they were working on their sophomore release. We'd come home from work about the mm -hmm. same time, and I would listen to the tracks they laid down for the day. And I would grill him. I would ask Dave questions, you know, what effect are you using there? Um, whose idea was the key change? And I never stumped him because Dave had a maker's knowledge of the songs. It wasn't that he studied them or listen to them on repeat or memorize the sheet music, he knew they were the way they were because he made them that way. That's analogous to the kind of knowledge God has of his cosmos, a designer's knowledge. And the original temptation then makes more sense that the serpent is offering Adam and Eve, you can be godlike, you can be the sovereign meaning makers over. Uh, you can be the definers of, and then it's followed in Hebrew by good and evil, which is an ancient Jewish idiom. You would use opposites to describe everything in between. Right. So, so good and evil, I don't take it to be moral categories in this context, so much as if you and I are ancient Jews and we say black and white, we would understand each other. We're referring to every color. If we say the Beatles and Nickelback <laughs> – we, we would understand we're describing every band the best, yeah. and sorry, Nickelback fans, the worst. <laughs> uh, and, and something like that is happening in Genesis 3, 5. You will be like God, knowing the sovereign definers over everything, good and evil, and everything in between. And so in that light, a lot of what's being – a lot of what's trending now is this is cutting edge, and this is innovative, and be true to yourself, and hashtag authenticity – uh, it really is outdated. Uh, it really is as uber traditionalist as it can possibly get, hearkening back to a serpent's deception in Genesis so, so, 3. So in this regard, there, there really is nothing new under the sun. Oh, exactly. Yeah, it's the oldest lie in the book, literally. So, so that's, that's, that's a really helpful take on Genesis 3. Mm. And I think that figure of speech is very, is, very, is very common in the Old Testament where you have two extremes, but what's meant is the whole in between. Everything, yep. And so I, yeah, I think most people take that as moral categories, but I think seeing it in that way as more all-encompassing is really helpful. Yeah. And I think is go so it goes to the heart of what the temptation actually was. Exactly, so, and it makes sense of the contemporary. It, it gives us a cultural hermeneutic. So now, when we hear cartoon characters telling kids to follow their heart, uh, if you pay close enough attention. You can not only hear, you know, the Jean-Paul Sartre saying, you just exist, you create your own essence. You not only hear um, sort of the echoes of a Fred Nietzsche saying, you know, because God is dead, we live beyond good and evil, the ubermanch who creates their own values. Right. If you listen close enough, you can hear, hey, kids, follow your hearts with an emphasis on the S there. You can hear the, the old serpents. Um, yeah. Propaganda, but is is there is there something positive and beneficial that we ought to take with the, from the notion of following our heart, or or do you see that as entirely 
a product of the, the first temptation? Yeah, good question. I think, uh, you know, just yesterday after I, I wrapped up things here on campus, I I headed back down the freeway and uh, I'm coaching uh, my little boy Henry's t-ball team. And we have quite a few... A sanctifying experience, <laughs> it I'm is sure. For sure. <laughs> yeah, Luther said the home was, you know, more the monastery than the monastery. Here, here. Yeah. The t-ball team can be a very sanctifying experience. So anyway, uh, there's quite a few little dudes on the team um, who it's pretty clear they've, they've never swung a bat in their lives. Um, they get up there and their little hands are quivering and their bats are shaking. They don't know which way to shape, which way to face. Uh, I was putting the, the ball on the tee for one kid. And his dad came up to me and said, hey, are you trying to teach him to hit lefty? You know, he's right-handed. Like, the kid didn't know. <laughs> and so if I have a kid who's flipping out about the, the terror of hitting a baseball or catching a baseball, it might be good advice to say, believe in yourself. might be good advice to say, you know, dig down deep and, and find something there and, and follow your heart. I think there's context where it's innocuous. This book isn't about that. Um, it's about you know what what a lot of the culture commentators are describing expressive individualism, uh, where okay. it's an all encompassing worldview. So it's this all encompassing worldview where I have a duty, not like in the traditional sense, to um, moral responsibilities outside of myself, um, where I need to be a good father and a good husband and uh, a good churchman and a good neighbor uh, or a good professor, anything like that. For the expressive individualist, it's really about making my three best friends, me, myself, and I, happy. And one of the marks of that ideology is that my feelings slash my heart, they occupy the role that Scripture takes in a historic Christian worldview. Um, my feelings are unassailable. My feelings are infallible. My feelings are unquestionable. And so now my moral duty is not to anything beyond myself. I have a duty to be true to myself. And the only real sin in expressive individualism is being inauthentic, namely not expressing your emotions. So I think that's helpful to see it more in terms of you know following my feelings. Yeah. Because uh, I think there is there is something positive about believing in yourself, you know, having having a you know a, a degree of self confidence, yeah. th- things like that. Particularly that we, that we as Christians, to, yeah. right? When our affections get reordered, recalibrated by the Holy Spirit, as God goes to work on our hearts, then there is a biblical sense in which we can follow yeah. our our spirit sanctified hearts. But I, I wonder if if this is one of those things, much like relativism. That once once people try it, you recognize pretty quickly that n- nobody really lives this way. Yeah, because I think I mean, if I follow my feelings, there <laughs> there I mean there'd be train wrecks coming uh, virtually every day, uh, and I would you know I I, I just I shudder to think of what my life would be like yeah. if I if I really really was true to myself and to my feelings. And it seems to me that a lot of the a lot of the whole I mean the whole demands of morality are designed to help us curb our inclination to follow our feelings. Yeah. I so, mean, so that we don't run the train off the rails. Yeah, sometimes literally. There, there's a slim chance you and I would have made it uh, to campus today if we followed our hearts, with, particularly driving up the 5 freeway. Uh, following my, hearts, my heart could have led some to some uh, 
catastrophes on the freeway, let's say. Um, so, so there's a sense in which um, the, the heart recalibrating work of the Holy Spirit is essential. All right. So let's, let's say, I mean, you've, the subtitle I think is really helpful, that bra- boldly breaking the Ten Commandments of self-worship. Mm. Where do we see self-worship most on display in the culture today? Yeah, it's, it's hard to say most because it's just so ubiquitous. Uh, I remember I was hammering out a chapter in a little courtyard in my yard, and to my left came a, a car on the street with its windows down, blaring um, the frozen anthem, Let It Go, which has the famous line, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. Uh, that's that expressive individualist yeah. sense of freedom. I'm free to the extent that I'm uh, shunning any and all transcendent expectations on my existence. Uh, well, to my other side, uh, my kids were in the living room watching uh, the My Little Pony movie. And I'd had this song called uh, Time to Be Awesome. And Time to Be Awesome, it says, you know, take the the Storm King's rules and, and toss them because it's time for you to be yourself, be awesome. And so I was literally sitting in an, in an author yourself sandwich being marketed to, to toddlers and, and adolescents. Uh, so I think we see it in, in the entertainment industry, especially uh, catered to the younger crowds. Um, I think we see it in all the um, cultural hubbub surrounding gender. Uh, where the idea is my subjective feelings. You see it in in law and politics, too. Uh, The move uh, in the last, I'd say, eight years towards self-ID, self-identification, meaning uh, under some of the older laws, there was a sense in which if I'm going to be a born male, but I want in the eyes of the law to be treated female, there were certain hoops you had to jump through. Um, sometimes that included reassignment, surgery, hormone treatments, things like that. Um, but the push in the last uh, five to eight years uh, on both sides of the Atlantic has been self I- self ID. No um, surgical, no medical uh, solutions necessary. All that it takes for me to be something else is the declarative statement: "I am a woman. I am fill in the blank." Um, so that's another area where. This expressive individualist notion of authenticity is is really at the forefront, and I think you know we could go on and on. Yeah, it's no, in the churches; it's virtually everywhere. We'll, we'll get to that in just a minute. Sure, but it is interesting to me that some on the other side of the Atlantic are actually backing away from some of this now. Oh yeah, we're, we're it's more been, extreme. It's been very encouraging to to see it in the you know the UK especially. Yep, is deci- deciding maybe this maybe this wasn't such a great idea. Yeah. Altogether, uh, so let's let's be a little more specific about what some of these ten, ten commandments of self worship are. Um, first of all, how did how did you come up with the idea of these ten commandments of self worship, and what are you what are you trying to encourage people to do with regard to this? Sure, yeah, a lot of it had to do with just um, trying my best to keep my finger on the pulse of. Of what's happening culturally, and you know, I'm I'm in many ways a product of the '90s. Uh, that's when I was sort of coming of age, and the '90s were really the age of anything goes, right? So you had Seinfeld, 
uh, had a recurring uh, punchline that was not that there's anything wrong with that. Uh, you had uh, Britney Spears topping the charts with We're Not That Innocent. You had uh, Nirvana and the advent of grunge rock with songs like Come As You Are. And so the 90s were very much sort of the heyday of postmodern relativism, the not that there's anything wrong with that, we're not that innocent, come as you are, anything goes. Yeah. The only sin was really calling anything sin. Uh, and I think we're just in a, a different age. Uh, the, there has been a, a marked cultural shift from that to we, we've gone from what uh, Robbie George out of Princeton calls the age of feeling. Uh, we, we've gone from the age of anything goes to the age of feeling where my emotions are sacrosanct, authoritative, unquestionable. And with that, we enter something more like, for lack of a better term, a post-postmodernism, where if you even dare question my self-defined self, you are a heretic. You, you are guilty of blasphemy. And so I think I began to notice in the culture that, that we are witnessing not just a cultural phenomena, but the rise of a new religion. Uh, it has adherence, like any religion, to the tune of 84% of Americans saying the chief end of, of human existence is self-gratification, 91% uh, saying the answers are within. Um, it has its prophets and saints. We, we mentioned Nietzsche uh, with you create your own values. We could talk about uh, Saint Sartre with you just exist, so create your own essence. We could talk about Michel Foucault, one of the saints of self-worship, that through sexual expression you achieve liberation from the, the oppressive um, heteronormative society. Um, we could talk about Saint uh, Herbert Marcuse of the Frankfurt School, so, so it has who, who also viewed sexual expression as the key to self-definition. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so you have... Sounds like it also has its modes of excommunication. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, um, there, there's like damnable can, heresy. Cancel culture. Cancel culture becomes uh, the secular counterpart of essentially the Inquisitions. Uh, and you also have hymns. You have sort of the sacred songbook of self-worship. We could think of, you know... For us, it would be Amazing Grace would be up there, How Great Thou Art, these great hymns, Exalting God. Um, sort of the equivalence under expressive individualism, you could think of Old Blue Eyes, right? Frank Sinatra with I Did It, did it My Way. My way. Yeah. Um, you could think of uh, Jojo Siwa as one of these sort of tween pop stars, and uh, song after song uh, is an anthem to my emotions. I got all these emotions. I'm not going to question them. Nobody's going to tell me who I'm going to be. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a be me. Um, the Mulan soundtrack has a Stevie Wonder hit, mm -hmm. Follow Your Heart, Your Heart Can't Lie, Celine Dion, Reba McIntyre. So it has its own hymn book. Um, Self-worship has its own, maybe we could call it a systematic theology. Um, it has a theology proper where the self is sovereign. Uh, it has its own kind of soteriology, its own system of salvation, where I need to be saved from, uh, well, well, let's put it in Christian categories first, where you get this courtroom image of God as judge, I'm in the defendant's bench, 
Satan is the accuser, the prosecuting attorney, and Jesus is my my parakletos in Greek, uh, my my defense attorney pleading my justification. Well, that's Christian soteriology and the soteriology of self-worship, the, the characters move around. So now anybody who questions my self-identified self ocup- occupies the role of the accuser, becomes Satan, the mm-hmm. functional devil of my worldview, anybody who would dare question my, my self-defined self. Um, so that's really what led to formulating these commandments was recognizing we're up against a new religion that has a theology, that has adherence, saints, has its own uh, hymnology, and also has its own decalogue, its own Ten Commandments. And, and was instituted in Genesis 3. Yeah, as a you, very, as very you, old as religion. As you pointed out, yeah, so there's really nothing new about that new expression. Yep. But the fundamental concepts are the same. So let's take some of the Ten Commandments of self-worship. Sure. I'm not sure we have time for all of them, but let's take just a handful of them. And then, well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what it is, and then you tell me what you mean, what's positive about it, and then a, a critique. Sure. Okay? How about the, the be true to yourself? And yeah, I love how you do this. There's a hashtag with with the, the cultural commandment sure. that heads up every chapter. Yep. Uh, okay, so what, what about be true to yourself? Yeah, so it's the idea here um, to shun any external authority— uh, because, again, my feelings are the starting point uh, for reality. And the ending point. And ultimately like the ending point. It, we end up, you know, David Foster Wallace, the great postmodern uh, novelist, uh, in his famous commencement speech called This is Water, that if any of the, the viewers or listeners haven't read or listened to, it's, it's well worth the 15 minutes. It's brilliant. Uh, and Wallace makes the point in that speech, he says, we become kings and queens of our tiny skull-sized kingdoms. So, so we kind of become trapped really in our own heads with this subjectivism. Um, so be true to yourself is a way of saying um, obey yourself. Don't let anybody else and their expectations affect you or you're being less than authentic. Where, where maybe there's a kernel of truth in that is we don't want to be just easily dupable by anybody's propaganda. Um, There's something to questioning the status quo, particularly when the status quo is out of sync with something like Scripture. Um, I think where it goes off the rails, particularly in the cult of self-worship, is it markets itself, especially to young people, as, look, you're captain of your own soul, You're, you're king or queen of your own castle here, this is autonomy. In reality, it makes people beholden to or devotees of a bunch of ideologues who they've probably never even heard of. So so just a quick concrete example of this would be, um, let's take a teenager who uh, in our day growing up would be considered a tomboy. Uh, Here's a female Mm -hmm. who manifests certain masculine um, traits. That would be a female who manifests masculine traits, i.e. a tomboy. Well, certain ideologues, including Fred Nietzsche, where we create our own identities and reality. Uh, again, Jean-Paul Sartre, Michel Foucault, um, John Money, 
Alfred Kinsey, Harry Benjamin, Judith Butler. There's a whole slew of sort of the, the forefathers, the architects of gender theory, whose idea has now – their ideas have become part of the air we breathe, part of the water we're swimming in. So now you take, say, a 16-year-old girl who before would just classify herself as a tomboy, and now she'll think she's being her true self by maybe changing her pronouns, uh, maybe getting hormone therapy and starting to take testosterone and grow facial hair and lower her voice, maybe by uh, pondering reassignment surgery. All along the way, she will be told, good on you, you're being your true self, you're being your authentic self. In reality, she is devoting herself to, she is on her knees to St. Marcuse. She is on her knees to St. Foucault. She is on her knees to to St. Judith Butler. She wouldn't even think in these categories without, if she weren't beholden to their ideology. And without, probably without being aware. Yeah. yeah. I guarantee you if you were to name those names, she'd look at you with a blank stare. So how about the, there's a, a second one, uh, which is the the acronym has become very common. It's the hashtag YOLO. Yeah, <laughs> you, you only live once. Sure. Okay, what's the point of that, and how is how is that how does that constitute one of the Ten Commandments of self worship? Yeah. So so YOLO. It's interesting some of the generation dynamics here. If I were to tell my 13 year old YOLO. Uh, she would hashtag cringe me or hashtag okay boomer me. <laughs> Apparently, that's not the uh, the cool lingo, but but the idea uh, is very much alive and well. And it's the idea that you have a, a moral duty to to yourself to indulge in adventure um, to to sort of suck the marrow out of life um, to to accumulate rushes. Uh, the, the rush of unfettered experience. Uh, and, and I think the way you originally framed the question, where are the elements of truth here? What, what are some kernels of truth? Uh, I think from a biblical worldview perspective, there's a deep sense in which we are part of a grand adventure, uh, that we are part of demolishing satanic strongholds, that we are part of a, a grand uh, Lord of the Rings-esque showdown uh, of good triumphing over evil uh, and that that epic uh, moral showdown is is transpiring in, in the mundane moments of, of daily life. So there is a sense in which um, life is adventurous. Uh, I would argue that a Christian worldview gives us a, a morally layered territory in which to have that kind of adventure. I think what self-worship does by elevating this subjective to supreme status is it has this massive flattening effect where if I'm the standard, then upward becomes impossible. Making progress becomes right. impossible because wherever I am, I'm the standard. Right. And, so, you, and you, by definition, you always meet the standard. Exactly. How dull, how boring is yeah. that? I'm always my best self because there's nothing higher than myself or my own fallen emotions to to progress towards. And so So it shouldn't actually be an admonition to be your best self. It should be a realization that you always are your exactly. best your best self. Exactly. And so the only thing that really becomes left of an adventure on that system is fighting 
any force that would question your autonomous mm-hmm. self. And that just that's not really an adventure. That's just a recipe for feeling chronically triggered and oppressed. Well, and I think you, you see that with the levels of mental health issues, the levels of depression, yeah. uh, anxiety, things like that. I wonder how those are connected. Well, well, think about it. I mean, in a biblical worldview, identity making is a that's a creator sized task. That's a God sized task. You read uh, Psalm one thirty nine, and there's mm-hmm. this language of I'm I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, and the the Hebrew here is very illuminating. The, uh, the wonderfully part uh, is pala in Hebrew. It's the sense of you are custom designed by the Creator, and then fearfully is this Hebrew yira. So, so God is making you with a sense of reverence, and He's making you unique. He's creating your identity. What self worship does is it takes that God sized task, the Creator sized task. And it drops it on the shoulders of finite creatures. And I've seen in, in ministry with millennials and down to Gen Z, and even with my own kids being um, assaulted with this propaganda to define themselves, it's just an impossible weight. People are exhausted. They're, they're buckling under the weight of having to craft and then sustain their identity meaningfully and coherently over time. And so part of the message of the book is it's so much more freeing to not have to take ourselves so seriously. You know, we yeah. we go way back with uh, J.P. Moreland, who's, who's been on the podcast many times, and uh, our office doors are about equidistant, about a, foot, a first down apart uh, on Talbot East. And I don't know if you've had this experience with him, but sometimes I'll see J.P. in the morning and he'll just say, good morning, idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and he doesn't mean it as as a jab, but in a deep, I think, part of what I'm up to in the book is when we take God seriously, it frees us up to not have to take ourselves so seriously. Self-worship doesn't do that. Yeah. You have to take yourself so seriously that how dare you transgress my autonomous self. There's just a sweet freedom in taking God so seriously that we can recognize our own idiocy. Well, and I think that... You know, that need to always, you know, you do you is just is exhausting yep. after a while. Yep. And that's why I think, you know, when Jesus talks about, you know, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, I think there's something, it has something to do with that. Sure. Um, so one, one other one, uh, and that is, this This has really become, I think, so evident in the culture, but the hashtag love is love. Yeah. Uh, spell that one out a bit. Yeah, so we've experienced over the course of the last, I'd say, 20 years, a fundamental culture shift on on what it means to love. Uh, so, so let's start with something less extreme than love. Tolerance used to carry the sense of, hey, you and I disagree, and we can still enjoy a cup of coffee together, and I can still hear you out. Um and at the end of the day, I can treat you with respect, even though we might land on different sides of the fence on a given question. Even though I might call you idiot. Oh, even though, yeah. <laughs> you have a little more tact than JP, so True. you just think it, you wouldn't say it. Uh, so when it comes to uh, tolerance, in the 90s, that word began to shift its meaning, where 
and the way I explain it to my my students is this. I'll say, look, how many of you by show of hands believe In-N-Out is the best burger joint in Southern California? And about half the hands go up. I say, it is impossible. <laughs> there you go. It's impossible for me to tolerate your position because I agree with it. I agree with it. Right. If you were to speak heresy and say five guys, right, or um, the habit or, God forbid, McDonald's or something, now I can be truly tolerant, right? And something like that has occur- occurred in our understanding of love where if the self is sovereign, then for you to question, disagree with, or do anything right. but accept and celebrate my behavior, my self-chosen identity, you're guilty of heresy, you're guilty of blasphemy, you're, you're guilty of hate, bigotry, yeah. and phobia. No, to di- to dis- if I disagree with you, that means I hate you. Exactly. And that's yeah. this isn't just an idea out there in, in the culture. Uh, the recent Barna study found that uh, amongst millennials, um, north of 75% think that uh, you should not share the gospel with somebody of a different faith in hopes of converting them or changing their belief yeah. system. What happens to the Great Commission in that? Well, it goes out the window. It goes completely out the window. We flush it down the toilet. The same study found that the overwhelming majority of boomers, Gen X, millennials, on down to Gen Z, believe that um, if you disagree with someone, disagreement means judgment. So, so we have very much, like chameleons, yeah. taken on the colors of the culture here. And I got to say, you know, if my wife comes home and I said, honey, I'm going to mow the lawn, and the lawn is unmowed and I'm snoring and drooling on the couch, I don't expect her to slow clap me and congratulate <laughs> me, and I just want to celebrate your, your choice. If I hop onto our Amazon cart and I see – you know, $50 has been spent on some rare face ointment from some excavated, petrified pomegranate that costs an outrageous amount of money. I'm, I'm not, you know, I really celebrate your, your choice here. So, so wonder of wonders in the Williams home, we can disagree and still love each other. We cannot celebrate every decision of the other or when our kids fly off the handle, we don't slow clap them. We disagree, and so that there's a biblical sense of love where you you can disagree, and in that sense, love can be truly redemptive. Love can actually make us more who we were intended to be. On self-worship, I already am everything I should be because I'm the standard, so redemptive love really becomes impossible on the self-worshippers. Yeah, I mean, it is true that God loves us and accepts us the way we are. Yeah. But he also loves us too much to let us stay that way. Exactly. And, re- and we recognize that we are works in progress. Yeah. We're idiots. Uh, JP the, had it right. From, well, from the start. <laughs> idiots in process. Uh, all right. Now, where, where do you find examples of this self-worship in the church? Yeah. I mean, just based on the fact that 84% of Americans say that uh, the highest goal of life is to make yourself happy, that 84 uh, there's going to be a big overlap in the Venn diagrams of people who would be church-going Christians. Um, I think one of the ways it's manifest is sort of the remnants of 
the, the 90s seeker-sensitive movement. Um, I remember John MacArthur saying back in the day that, you know, in light of John 4, we want to be seeker-sensitive. God seeks those who worship him in spirit and truth. So to be seeker-sensitive to the true capital S seeker, God, uh, and, and worship him on his terms. Um, but with the lowercase s uh, seeker-sensitivism that uh, even though the movement has sort of waned, uh, I, I still think uh, the American church is very much under its sway, um, where we ask questions when we go to church that are consumer questions. Did I get fed? Um, the, ther- did, the therapeutic gospel. Yeah, the therapeutic gospel. Did, did the message push all the right buttons in me? Did I connect with the worship? Is the children's program up to, up to my standards? So, so we approach church very much with the consumer mentality. Is this gratifying my three best friends, me, myself, and I, versus, hey, if this church maybe doesn't have the emphasis on, on missions that I'm looking for, maybe that's precisely why I'm at this church. Maybe this church has a pretty lousy children's program. Maybe that's the precise reason that God is, is calling me to this congregation. Um, so I think that that's one of the ways we see it manifest in the church combined with um, put it this way, how many sermons are here's three ways God can help you, you know do a better job at work. And obviously, there's an important conversation to have there about vocation and working to the glory of God. And, and but, but in terms of being awestruck at the size of God, um, j- just so in the book in chapter one, I lay out 14 differences between the Creator and the creation, and I just say one of the reasons self-worship is so dull and boring is it robs us of awe. God is exponentially more awesome than we are in all of these ways. And I think in, in much of the church world, we've sort of flipped that around. And um, how can God enhance my career? How can God enhance my self-image, enhance my, my game? But we do. You know, we recognize that some of the great ancient philosophers like Plato and Aristotle did put a high premium on happiness. Yes. You know, Aristotle, eudaimonia. Yep. Um, what's the difference between Aristotle's view of happiness and the view of self-worship in the culture today? Yeah. So, so for Aristotle, we're designed that there is a human essence. And, and you achieve eudaimonia, you know, by tapping into your telos, your reason, your built-in design. So if you have a, a toaster oven— and you're using it on a chilly day to warm your hands, that's not going to go very well for you. If you have a, a fan, or let's, let's go more extreme. Let's say you have a, a lawnmower, and you prop that thing up on a hot day and get that blade twirling to cool down, your cat's going to lose a tail. You might lose a couple toes. Your lawnmower is going to achieve eudaimonia, fulfillment, happiness, to the extent that it's doing its design to cut grass. Your toaster is going to achieve eudaimonia. It's going to be a, a, a happy toaster to the extent that it's toasting. Uh, humans are teleological beings, and, and the Westminster divines had it right. What is our telos? What is the chief end? Yeah. So, I mean, Aristotle, would, I think, would be aghast 
at the way happiness has been redefined yeah. apart, from, apart from that design. And so I think, as I understand Aristotle, if you, if you're, it's like a train running on the tracks. Yeah. If you're running on the tracks that God designed, the train's actually free when it's on the tracks. That's exactly right. As opposed to being enslaved when it's off the tracks. That's exactly right. right. And I, so yeah. I think that's, that's one thing I think we, we ought to just be clear about that the ancient notion of happiness and the contemporary one are completely different. Yeah. Uh, and grounded really differently. And, and one allows, again, for adventure and the other doesn't. And so in, in the book, I sort of rewrite a scene from Lord of the Rings. There's, there's a moment where Frodo, the ring bearer, he has his telos. He has his, his purpose, his reason for being, which is ultimately to destroy the ring of power and, and liberate Middle Earth. Um, but that's, that's an exhausting journey. And so he has this moment bordering on despair where he turns to Sam and says, what are we holding on to? And Sam says that there's some good left in this world and it's worth fighting for. So there's, there's a cause that transcends us and our feelings in the moment. Well, the self-worshippers rewrite of that scene would be, Sam, what are we holding on to? And Sam says, well, there is no transcendent good. It's, it's whatever you feel like. And in, in the grand sense, there's nothing any better or worse than our desire to destroy the ring than Sauron's desire to reclaim it or the Urukai's vision to, to put man flesh back on the menu. It just – it all becomes different strokes for different folks, which makes life impossibly yeah. boring. I suspect they would have kept the ring. Right <laughs> in, that, in that rewrite, if they were following their yeah. hearts, they certainly would have. All right, now you call you call just a couple last questions here. Sure. You you call followers of Jesus to be cultural heretics. Hmm. Hey, give me a quick example of somebody who you think is a is a a good cultural heretic. Yeah, well, <laughs> our mutual friend J.P. Moreland, I think, does a pretty good job. Um, one of the things he's been mentoring me for over twenty years. And one of the things he's helped me do is take myself less seriously because he doesn't take himself that seriously. Um, I think uh, the the Christians who are on the front lines uh, combating things like human trafficking, you know, I, I mentioned in the book that the you do you mentality, that hashtag strips us of moral courage to stand up to evil mm -hmm. because it just says, you know, different strokes for different folks and you know, they're following their hearts, I'm going to follow mine. And so you look throughout church history at the, the Harriet Tubmans, the Sojourner Truths, the Frederick Douglasses, yeah, the no, William Wilberforces. No, play, no place for heroes. <laughs> right? That, yeah. that not a single one of them held to this anything goes, you do you mentality. They all believed in a transcendent good. And I think uh, there's, there's many Christians in our day and age on the front lines of fighting modern-day slavery, human trafficking. Uh, there's many Christians on the forefront of adoption and, and foster care. Uh, many Christians who just, maybe it's not some, I'm storming the carpet looms of India with the machine gun to liberate child slaves. Maybe it's the, uh, the faithful husband and the faithful wife who are training their kids to follow God's heart and, and reading Scripture to them before bed. Um, maybe it's it's the the professor, the businessman who is doing his or her work to the glory of God, um, rather than just 
living for sensory gratification in the moment. So uh, it doesn't take much <laughs> to, yeah. to be heroic in a biblical sense and, and to be countercultural, to be a heretic against the cult of self-worship. Well, I think that, that's, that's a good word, I think, that it doesn't have to be something dramatic or something particularly you know, visible or noteworthy. Yeah. Most of our heroic stuff is lived out in the day-to-day, the dailiness of life. Yeah, coaching um, T-ball. Yeah. Felt like taking the ring to Mordor. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you close the book with a great part, the Heretics Manifesto. Sure. Uh, and so I would encourage all of our audience to be sure and look at that Heretics Manifesto and to sign it. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and to be a part of that. Yeah, you can hop on to uh, www.jointheheretics.com. Uh, the whole manifesto is available to, to read and sign there. It's very straightforward. It just says self-worship promises awe, an awesome life. Mm-hmm. It actually robs us of awe. It, it pretends that it's cutting edge. It's actually hopelessly outdated. It promises authenticity. It makes us arrogant. It it promises love as love, but actually makes bigots of us. It promises the answers are within, the problems are within. Uh, and so I, I lay out in the That's manifesto, really here's ways to be heretics in this cultural moment against the cult of self-worship. Here's how, again, in the wisdom of a nine-year-old, to follow God's heart instead of our hearts. Well, I want to commend to our audience your book, Don't Follow Your Heart. Boldly breaking the Ten Commandments of self-worship. It's you know struck me as we were talking about this and the examples you gave from your kids that this is this is really an important book for parents yeah. of you know middle school teenagers, uh, college students yeah. to have to help them fight against like as you put it the air we breathe and the water we swim in because there's so much a part of the culture. So I want to especially commend I think parents of kids that are your kids' age, I think would find this especially helpful. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it, you've, done a, you've done a really good job with this. It's so clear. Uh, it's obvious that you're well-read on this, and you bring, and it's obvious that you're well-read about music uh, as well. <laughs> uh, and so this has just been a rich conversation. I'm so grateful for the book and for you taking the time to spell these out a little bit further. It's been so enlightening and so helpful. Thank you, Scott. Always a joy to be with you. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. Uh, To submit comments, we want to invite you to do that, ask questions or make suggestions on issues you'd like us to cover or guests you'd like us to consider. You can email us now at thinkbiblically, all one word, thinkbiblically at biola.edu. Enjoy today's conversation with our our friend, uh, Dr. Thad Williams. And if if, if you like the idea of studying with him, or if you're a parent having your son or daughter study with him at Biola, uh, he teaches undergrads on a regular basis virtually every semester with really rich stuff that, they, uh, that they're gleaning from. So we encourage you to think about think about that at, at biola.edu. So it's been a great conversation. Glad you could join us. We'll see you next time.